0: We had a common goal of wanting to start something on on our own. You know, that right mix of um, wanting to do something and have a little bit more control over your schedule and more autonomy in your decision making. The second best alternative is you have a lot of people or you have people who are those same qualities but maybe think differently and you can work with that gridlock and come to a, a conclusion about what the right decision is. Fitness is a fantastic niche for any aggregator or anyone building an e-commerce portfolio. I mean, you can make the case that it's almost recession-proof. It's going to be good in a good recession. It's going to be good in a bad recession.
1: So this episode features a founder's story on how they exited and what life looks like after the exit. It's a great episode you do not want to miss, so do stay tuned. Hey 2Xers, welcome to the 2X e commerce podcast. I'm your host, Kune Campbell. The 2X e commerce is a podcast dedicated to digital commerce insights for retail and e commerce teams. So each week on this podcast, we interview either a commerce expert, a founder at a digital native consumer brand, or a representative from a best in class commerce SaaS product. We give them a tight remit to give you ideas that you can test right away on your brand so you can improve commerce growth metrics such as conversions, average order value, repeat customers, your audience size, and ultimately your gross merchant value or sales. We are here to help you sell more sustainably. Now, um, the interview you're about to listen to is an interview I had with Jay Perkins, um Jay Perkins is 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 very you know interesting individual. He, um, he used to work for Big Commerce, um believe it or not. Um and while in Big Commerce he was moonlighting um and set up a essentially a D2C e-commerce brand called Kettle Bell Kings. So they sell they sold essentially kettlebells. Um this was in, in 2013, I believe. And in 2021, um he had a, a mid <coughs> mid-seven-figure exit with his three other co-founders um he sold to um to 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 a Spanish aggregator at the time, which was then eventually acquired by razor. um you might know razor they're a german they're a big german um, you know e commerce aggregator. um so he gave he what you're about to listen to is an interview I had with him where he tells the the story of actually um how he ideated Kettlebell Kings and how he brought it to market. How we built it, how we grew it, um, supply chain challenges, their branding, their marketing, their focus on product, and essentially where they are now, where they're in an earnout. They got a good um, chunk of, um, of 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 um, of capital off the back of the acquisition, um, and and now um, they're in a three-year earnout. I think they're in year one of, of the earnout. They're just about to wrap up year one of the earnout. It's super interesting, and um, we talk marketing. We talk, um, you know, M and A. We talk a bit of finance and organization in terms of just making, um, you know, just keeping your house intact. Um, what a fun fact is that they they didn't go through a broker, um, which is kind of good because um, you know they didn't pay any any percentage, any commissions, right? Um, which is kind of good for the deal. Um, but but he also gives me the intricacies of um, um, just um, how they had to serve, um, you know, get their house in order. The deal. Um, took over 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 three months to to close, and it was in the heat of it all. You know, last year was crazy for e-commerce M&A, um, and you know they they were part of that wave, and they sold at the right time. But right now, um, he is um, he's he's running another sort of fitness brand called not sort of, He's running a fitness brand called Living Fit, um, and um, Living Fit sell um, digital products and um, physical products in the fitness space. Um obviously not kettlebells and um, they're in a non-compete, as you can imagine. Um, but we talk a bit about Living Fit, um their journey thus far, um to 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 where they are right now, and and just just general general strategy advice, you know, what what it it's it's like, you know, um as a founder from from his perspective. And we exchange notes um with with what we're doing at Octelian. Um, so enjoy this episode if you you know want to find out what life is like after an exit what's the anticipation of building a, a brand for an exit for you know for a seven figure a mid seven figure exit you know looks like and um you know just to hear jay jay perkins story so enjoy 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 and create marketing moments that build valuable customer relationships over any distance. Get started for free today. Visit clavio.com forward slash 2x to create your free account. That is K-L-A-V-I-Y-O dot com forward slash 2x. Hey Jay, welcome to the 2x e-commerce podcast. Hi,
0: glad to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: No, it's, it's it's been a long time coming. Um I've um followed the journey, um, your your journey a little bit. Um, and I have some context. I have lots of questions. Um, you saw that the right time, I have yeah. to say. Um, but you also put in a lot of grunt work, you know, um at the beginning, um, from twenty twelve to twenty twenty one. That's a lot of time, you know, to to really build value, you know, to to the market and you you know, I've learned a thing or two in our pre-interview. So amazing, amazing stuff. Looking forward to this one. Going to start out first, Jay, with um, who you are. You know, kind of like um, your childhood, where you grew up. Um, I just want to know more about that. Um, you know, just the beginning, the genesis, the origin, right? So so let's jump in. Sure. Um, I
0: grew up in San Antonio, Texas. Um, born and raised there and... Um, I moved to Austin, Texas for college in 2004 and, uh, you know, I guess for me, that's really when life began, I guess, because I just, I got to Austin and I was just blown away by the city. I could just feel the difference from where I grew up and I said to myself, you know, I want to be here after college. And, uh, fortunately that's turned to be a really good decision as it's been, you know, one of the fastest growing cities really in the world, uh, and- especially in the tech space. Um, So my first job out of college was actually doing financial sales, which if you've ever talked to anybody who does that, it's, it's just a meat grinder. You know, you're making a hundred phone calls a day, you know, you're, and this was in 2008. And so I start this career right as the entire global financial system is melting down Mm. and I'm having to talk to people about, you know, now's the best time to invest, you know, please invest with this 22 year old fresh face, cleanly shaven, you know, a human being, uh, (laughs) that was tough. Um, but I will say, I, I think that's, I learned some of my most important lessons at that job, which is just not being willing to give up on anything, you know, just really working really, really hard, making a hundred phone calls a day, going in on Saturday mornings to make phone calls. So I did that about six to seven years. Uh, and after a brief stint in Las Vegas, trying to consider if I wanted to uh, play cards for a living. I quickly decided, uh, no, I want to go back and get a, a job. And uh, I had a few friends working in tech sales at the time. It seemed like they liked it. They were making good money. and so I actually started working at an e-commerce company called Big Commerce. and uh, I was there for about a year. and that's really where like a lot of the financial sales experience kicked in big time. I came in and you know, I was making way more calls than everyone every day. Um, you know, I was willing to work longer hours, and that led to a lot of success in that career. And that's where I started my first e-commerce store, which is essentially the beginning of what brings us here today.
1: Amazing, amazing! So you're you're in? Are you still in 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 Austin, Texas? I'm
0: doing this call from Palm Springs, California, but I do live in Austin, Texas. Uh, okay.
1: So do, do you know Eric Ban- Banholz? I do not. Okay. Interesting. Um, yeah, he's, he, he's based in, in, in Austin, Texas, and he has a, a, a brand called the Beard brand. And, um, yeah. Okay.
0: I feel, I feel like
1: I know the name of the brand.
0: I, yeah. I will say anytime anyone asks me, do you know so-and-so like they're in fitness or they're in e-commerce? I feel bad because I usually don't because I've just been like head down working very hard. And so I feel like I constantly disappoint on those questions.
1: No, no, it's fine. It's, it's okay. It's okay. Um, Amazing. So there's there's a lot to unpick, you know, from 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 what you said. Um, big commerce. We, we know big commerce. Um, you know, I've I've had. Um, I know a few people in big commerce. Um, i I'm act- I've actually written blog posts for 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 their website. Um, so when you're in big commerce, were you privy to like the e-commerce opportunity, um, or was like kettlebell or, or kettlebells your was, was that how you're working out was it was it like your fitness regime where it was like your passion pro, you know your passion that you were trying to sort of you know monetize in a way
0: that's a, a great question um so being a big commerce you would hear the executives throw out numbers about like what the anticipated size of the e- e-commerce market was going to be like over the next decade you know you'd hear numbers like hundreds of billions of dollars trillions of dollars honestly, like it didn't really compute much for me that I said to myself like, Oh, that's so big. I got to get in this, you know, um, kettlebells was not necessarily like a passion. I, I used them pretty frequently in workouts. I was exposed to them initially through CrossFit, like a lot of people were. Um, mm-hmm. and as my co-founders and I were kicking around different business ideas that just kind of popped in our heads because we were using them in our workouts. My two co-founders were college athletes, so they had exposure to them, using them quite a bit. And just you know, as basic as it is, like the number one rule in e-commerce was you got to find your niche, right? And out of the thousands of websites that I sold while at Big Commerce, no one was selling kettlebells. You know, there was lots of e-cigs, lots of lingerie, lots of that type of stuff. But I was, we, as we looked at it, we we're just like, there's not a lot of people really focusing on this niche. It seems like if we we can build out an entire strategy around serving this community.
1: Interesting. So you let the data actually guide your, your decision from the get-go um, and you were privy to, to, to a lot of data points. What about your co-founders, your two other co-founders? Were they um, colleagues at Big Commerce BigCommerce yourself, um, themselves or um, were, they, were they not?
0: No, they, we were friends from college. So okay. um, they were t- teammates of one of my good friends from growing up and just through hanging out in college. We got to know each other very well continued to um hang out quite a bit after college they lived in houston at the time they'd come visit in austin a lot we'd go on you know guys trips together uh that type of stuff mm-hmm. and uh, i think we all just we had a common goal of wanting to start something on, on our own you know that right mix of um wanting to do something and have a little bit more control over your schedule and more autonomy and your decision making and so we ha- we would have like weekly conferences for about a year, just kind of kicking around business ideas and what should we do. And eventually, we settled on an e-commerce product as opposed to like a service or you know a software product or something like that. And at at some point, you just kind of go for it, and that's what we did.
1: Amazing, interesting, really, really interesting. And then was it was it initially a side project or um, did you just you know just drop everything and go for it?
0: Yeah, it was a side project. Um, So I continued to work at Big Commerce during the first six to eight months of the business. One of the partners was doing that as well as another business. He was starting the time full time, so he actually, you know, went for it. He was not working his corporate job, Mm -hmm. Uh, but I was still at Big Commerce for the first six to eight months of the business.
1: Okay. Okay. Makes sense. Makes sense. Okay so with uh, with with a new sort of e-commerce undertaking that's obviously not drop shipping um did you start out drop shipping or did you did you figure out um you know um did you did, were you shipping yourselves did you, did you um essentially fulfill yourselves
0: Yeah we we did fulfill ourselves um, wow Yes. None of us, we didn't really have any experience in e-commerce other than, you know, the conversations I was having with potential big commerce customers. We hadn't really run, you know, shipping infrastructure. A lot of it was just learning on the fly. And you can imagine with kettlebells, there's some challenges there and the cost of shipping uh, and that type of thing.
1: Okay. So... With op starts or with startups like 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 your one um, in in e-commerce, they are kind of like three key um, just levers to push to to really really push you know to to really really get things off the ground. One is the supply chain. Um, obviously, you're not manufacturers; you'd need to work with a factory. Mm-hmm. Um, first question was was the was the supply chain localized um, to the United States or did you have to go to to Far East Asia? And then you have the second, which is brand. Um, sometimes you don't really focus on brand that much, but you still need a ton of voice. And then the third, really, is the marketing, which really is how are we going to get customers? So we're going to start out with, um, with 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 the supply chain. Um, uh, yeah, so, so the early days. How did you figure out the supply chain? Did you just jump on Alibaba, or did you look for really, really specialist artisan? Um, you know, kettlebells, because you said you were more in the premium, you know, end of of the scale.
0: Yeah, that's a great question, and that to me was the first example of something that served us well throughout the life of our business, which was just being willing to evolve and change what we're doing and constantly adjust and treat the business like an organism that has to grow and change over time, as opposed to be rigid about what we do. So we had no experience importing. We had never bought anything wholesale before. We did look at things like Alibaba, but just because we had no experience, we didn't really know what to do. The original premise of the store was we were going to try to be like a kettlebell superstore, uh, which sounds so absurd in retrospect. Like we were going to basically source different brands of kettlebells and then just sell all kinds of different brands of kettlebells, right? That was the original premise. So our first load of product, we actually bought wholesale from another company and we were just selling that brand. Like we very quickly, obviously realized, oh, this is not going to work from a margin perspective or a tactical perspective. And then that's where we did start to look to source from overseas. Um, and obviously that was a challenge too. I mean, any stereotype you've probably heard about importing, it's, we certainly found it to be true. You know, suppliers don't always do what they say they're going to do. You're going to receive plenty of bad products sometimes. And so we just constantly had to figure it out and tweak it over the first year and a half there.
1: Amazing. Interesting. Um, uh, so you started it out in 2012, um, as a, as a side business. When did you know that, um, Okay, I could actually go full time with this with my other co-founders. When did you guys each sort of time that um, you know full time um, make that full time you know decision to to work um, you know solely on the business?
0: Well, I think knowing and doing was two different things. You know, I I think it probably took me about four years to feel like okay, we're good, like we're gonna be okay. You know, like we've got the rankings online, we've got the customer base, and we're building that critical mass of. As long as we don't really mess up here, everything's going to be okay. But um, it was August of 2012, I think, when we made our first sale. Um, you know, online, some random person showed up to the website from Google Ads and bought. And it was February of the next year that I started full time. And you know, that's it wasn't necessarily because it was like I thought we've really got something here. It was just you know just doing it basically and mm-hmm. uh, putting more effort to it.
1: And then, what were your roles? Um, you know, each of the founders' roles. Three founders in a role um, in you know in a business. And would you recommend um, you know an e-commerce business having three founders based on on um, your experience?
0: Yeah, that's a fantastic question too. So, um, two of us who were pretty much working in the day to day of the business, it was pretty mixed and combined on the decision making process, right? Um, so a lot of it was a combined effort of doing social media talking to a marketing firm we had hired about the strategy tweaking things on the website shipping out product like we we originally re- rented like a 10 by 10 foot storage unit we received our first load from we have to drive over to the storage unit get it take it over to like office max to ship it out right mm-hmm. um so there was a lot of just back and forth between the both of us, two of us when we started One partner was still working and he was mainly in charge of like accounts payable and paying bills and and that type of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's how it started. Um, As far as, you know, what I recommend having co-founders, I think every situation is different, right? Like you have to, I think one, be aware of what your specialty is and what you're not good at and what you're not going to have time to do. Um, And are there people who can bring something else to the table for those things like different perspectives, right? Um, I think you also, it is important to have a, a structure in place of what decisions are final. It's, it can become a challenge for sure when you have people with different ideas about how to do things. And so um, I would say this to my partners a lot. I think the, the ideal business setup is you have three people who are super geniuses, always right about everything, never wrong and work really hard. That would be like building the ultimate corporation. The second best alternative is you have a lot of people or you have people who are those same qualities, but maybe think differently. And you can work with that gridlock and come to a, a conclusion about what the right decision is. It's painful and it's gonna suck at times because you're not always gonna agree. And if you're friends first, it can be painful. But I do think in the end, differing opinions are the next best thing if you're not just not going to get it right every time. Right. Um, and that's true of any business. Like it, You're going to feel a certain way based on your interactions with your coworkers or your co-founders. But as long as you can trust that you're going to come to a consensus, I do think that's an important part of the business process.
1: Yeah. 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 The checks and balances are absolutely important. I, I was recording, um, um, another episode earlier today and um, you know what What my guest said you know he's been in business for like 20 years 20 plus years i was like look um don't let it get into your head as a founder you know have have a cancel you know and lean on on their on their advice um you know lean you don't necessarily need to take it but perspectives are so important you know you, you we only have you know, so much um, from an angle perspective in terms of what we could see right in front right. of us. And, you know, there are blind spots everywhere. So, yeah, yeah. I agree with you. It,
0: it's not easy, but, I you know, I certainly always wanted to try to understand what is the experience and perspective that, whether it's a co-founder or anyone that we're dealing with that's helping them arrive at this decision, you know. Um, and so, again, it's, it's not always easy, but I do think it actually probably is for the best. Because, the worst case scenario is you all agree and you're just wrong about everything. and You go off a cliff together, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so, in in some ways, gridlock is much better than agreeing and just completely, you know, ending it all. But at least you got along with each other.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. 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 So, so the supply chain, um, you know, actually evolved over time um, with, with 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 kettle kettlebell kings. Okay. So, um, w- what about brand? Um, how do you think? um how do you think your brand evolved you know over um from 2012 to 2021 when you exited to to with um um you know when, when you exited in, in in the in the MA deal
0: yeah i mean to me this is another thing that i i feel like i really took for granted in the beginning um i don't think i had a, a real grasp of the importance of branding and aesthetic and you know luckily i think uh my other partners did, you know, they. I think they understood from the beginning the importance of how people perceive the brand, you know, how a logo looks, how people even feel about the logo. Like, what does what does a logo make people feel? Right. I was willing to just roll with some random design that uh, AdWords firm we hired was going to give us as our logo, but you know, they were kind of sticklers about a different way to do it. So the brand basically changed from the idea of being a kettlebell superstore to okay, we're going to brand our own items now right so we we realized that we had to do that one from you know a margin perspective uh and that was pretty much the main driver of that and so the brand shifted from the idea of being like a kettlebell superstore to we're going to go source our own products and start putting our own logo and our own name on items that we uh get now even then like two years into that process the products we were selling were very different from when we start, started that first endeavor you know we started working with people who are experts in the ketomo community asking them questions about like what makes a good quality product what would they like to change about this prototype what would they change about that model And so in a lot of ways the products that we currently have today which are still subject to evolution uh, were almost crowdsourced in a way from experts you know telling us, This is what I would like to see on an item, for example. Mm,
1: mm, mm. So what what I'm picking up from there really is um, the brand evolved, but also um, your attention to detail on the quality of the experience you wanted your products to deliver also evolved. And um, there was that nice sort of... um, um, I'd say a a an amalgamation a, a of um, both brand and product from the feedback you got from um, from from the community to to towards actually improving and making um, the perception of kettlebell kettlebell kings actually premium.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, early on, I, I wouldn't have been able to necessarily tell you like what I think makes a good brand, and that's a message that we picked up on over you know just listening to our customers and experts over the first couple of years. You know that our brand stood for high quality uh, superb customer service experience
1: mm. 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 super super interesting right um so what did revenue look like over the years um, from twenty twelve to twenty twenty one and when did you think it was um, it was ripe to sell why you know twenty twenty one is a fa- was a fantastic time you know yeah' talk about great timing. And, um, interestingly, um, it's, it's, you, you have, um, your, your, your logo is like a King, you know, from your poker. I'm not sure whether this is linked to your, 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 um, your, 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 your Vegas, um, uh, you know, days where it's a King, you know, it's, it's, it's lucky. Right. Um, but, but yeah, how would you, um, w- what, what was revenue over the years and, um, why did you decide to sell in 2021?
0: Yeah, so we, I mean, we were very fortunate that we grew every year that we were in the business. You know, we never had a down year and we were always just limited by inventory. You know, the first couple of years, we'd go six months without our best SKUs at some point as we try to figure out the whole logistics process and uh, projections process. So our first year in business, we did about 60,000 in sales in 2012. Um, yeah, I think the next year we quadrupled. The year after that, we tripled. After that, I think we tripled again, Uh, and then after that, it was about fifty percent growth. By the time we got to the the exit point, Um, so that was the trajectory that we were on. Uh, Question about um, you know why do we decide to sell? You know, we would even talk early on in the business uh, about like what would it take to sell right now, and I think those discussions are helpful so you can know how you're partners think about things and just be thinking about that ahead of time. And I wouldn't say that there was ever like a set number that we wanted. It was more about, you know, life goals. You know, we knew we didn't want to be doing this business forever. Two is what's the current state of the market, right? Uh, Three is what's the offer that you are getting, you know, and how does that apply to like what you think is your own potential upside if you were doing it on your own. And so we, we, got an offer that we felt was one rewarding us for all the work that we had put in, but two allowing us to uh, participate in any future upside of the business where it could do things that we would not have been able to do running it on our own.
1: Mm. Was this a strategic acquisition from like um, from another sports brand or um, did it come from um, an aggregator of brands?
0: It was an aggregator.
1: Okay. Yeah. What was the name of the aggregator you sold to?
0: So the original aggregator was called Factory 14. Mm-hmm. Um, they were based out of Madrid. And then within two or three months of working with them, they were acquired by a company called Razor Group, who now currently owns the brand and who I, along with one of my co-founders, work with on a weekly basis to continue to help grow the brand.
1: Okay. And then you did have a side project over the um, over the course of Kettlebell. Uh, of Kettlebell Kings. Um, why did you have this side project? You want to shed a bit, um, some, some some more light on on the side project you had, which was another e-commerce brand.
0: Yeah. Um, so within the kettlebell business around 2015, 2016, we were trying to think about, well, we're only selling kettlebells, right? So what, what if uh, tomorrow there's a bunch of bad press about how nobody should use kettlebells or... You know, what if there's a shortage on metal to make kettlebells? Just how can we diversify this business to protect and grow over time? And so we started a brand called Living.Fit under that brand. And uh, basically that brand houses all things that are non-kettlebell equipment. You know, so dumbbells, slam balls, battle ropes, bands, things like that, as well as digital items. So there's courses designed for trainers who want to be able to teach kettlebell, be able to teach battle rope. Uh, and there's workouts for people who want to work out with the equipment as well. Um, So we started that brand and it was a challenge to try to build another brand with all the limitations of needing to fund the main business, the main moneymaker. But uh, in the transaction, I did retain ownership in that brand. And so that's part of what I'm now working on on building um, while I split time with the the new owner of Kettlebell Kings.
1: With your other co-founders?
0: It's along with one of the co-founders from Kettlebell Kings.
1: Interesting. Um, what was the what was the exit? Going back to to the deal, um, what what multiples did you sell? Was it based on 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 your EBITDA? Was it based on on revenue? Um, what what kind of multiple? was the the deal structure like?
0: Yeah, it was as I recall. It was about a five and a half EBITDA multiple. Um, oh, that's good. Yeah, which we felt pretty good about. You know, we like I talked about, the decision to sell you know should probably be a decision that changes and adjusts over time based on market situations, personal situations. You know we were talking to our, our accountants and different contacts we had about you know what were current multiples for e-commerce businesses. And so we felt uh, pretty good about that particular multiple. We had a couple offers at the time and that was the best multiple offer that we got. Mm-hmm. And so we accepted that because it also had a, a good earnout provision. Mm. And we felt that the, if the things that we had been telling ourselves about our ability to grow the business with the right funding and the right marketing and inventory were true, that this particular deal allowed us to actually continue to uh, do those things post acquisition because we would be working with the buyer.
1: Mm. Mm. And with 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 the deal with with the, with the multiples that you. Um, uh, I lost my my train of thoughts. Um, but with 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 the with, with the multiples, did you um did you go through a broker? That that's my my question. Did you were you proactive in saying okay, we're going to market, we're going to go through a broker, we're going to sort of present ourselves, we're going to you know get all our books in in order, our processes in order to to sell.
0: No, so we, we didn't go through a broker. I mean, we were fortunate that we had built pretty good visibility in our space. And so, you know, uh, during that time, you know, 2020 and 2021, if you were to go to Google and search the term kettlebell or kettlebells, our business was showing up number one on Google above companies like Amazon, much larger fitness companies. And those are because of, you know, deliberate strategies we had used to work on that over time. Mm-hmm. So, as these aggregators were going and looking for potential acquisitions you know in the fitness space because i I think fitness is a fantastic niche for any aggregator or anyone building an e-commerce portfolio i mean you can make the case that it's almost recession proof it's going to be good in a good recession it's going to be good in a bad recession there's limitless possibilities around a fitness business I, i think it's one of the best you could be in but we we started receiving lots of inquiries one, from people you know, wanting to know if we wanted to take on capital. Two, from people looking to potentially buy. And so as we received our first handful of people who wanted to start the conversation about acquisition, we did some proactive outreach on our own at that point with all the, the main aggregators because we wanted to have enough information for any conversation we were having about what people were offering, what people were looking for. And so it started with, organic reach out to us, but then we did some of our own in order to make sure to see what's out there on the market.
1: Let's take this quick break to hear from our sponsors. The subscription market is predicted to grow to nearly 500 billion by 2025. As a fast growing area in commerce, subscriptions hold tremendous opportunities to build a community of customers who share your values. Recharge is the leading subscription management solution helping e-commerce merchants of all sizes launch and scale subscription offerings. Recharge powers the growth of over 15,000 subscription merchants and their communities, turning one-time transactions into long-term customer relationships. Whether you're a direct-to-consumer business or an omni-channel brand, subscriptions strengthen the brand relationships with your customers and make it easy for customers to make repeat purchases. With subscriptions, merchants are able to experience predictable revenue, increased customer loyalty, and higher average order values. Turn transactions into relationships and experience seamless subscription commerce with Recharge. Get started today with a subscription payment solution trusted by over 50 million subscribers worldwide by heading over to rechargepayments.com forward slash 2x. That is rechargepayments.com forward slash 2x. G I A S dot com and mention 2x e commerce podcast for two months free. That is gorgeous.com for two months free. Just mention 2x e commerce. Interesting um, that it was all inbound. And then, how did you sort of prepare yourselves? Because, um, you know, speaking to a lot of sellers, um, when you're facing, um, you know, potential su- su- suitors, you know, in, in the market, just preparation is it can be all over the place, um, particularly from a financial standpoint when they're trying to do their due diligence. Um, did you? Do, do you have any stories to tell <laughs> on, on that?
0: Yeah, yeah, I don't think like any disaster stories, but I will say like to me, that would be like one of the number one pieces of advice I would give anybody running an e-commerce business or starting one is like, make sure your books are in good working order. Um, I think we did a lot of things really well over the course of our business and building our brand. But I think a struggle for me at least was finding good financial people um, over time. And it certainly would have been helpful to have things just a little bit more tidy in the sense of this cost goes here, this cost goes there because to the credit of the purchaser, it was a pretty rigorous due diligence process. I mean, we were in communication with them almost every day for about a two month period Oh, you spent a hundred dollars here this month. That wasn't here that month. Like what would, you know, just a lot of even super tedious little questions about stuff like that. Uh, I guess a random piece of advice would be uh, don't run any of your subscriptions or SaaS that you're paying for through PayPal, because that was a bit of a nightmare for us having to try to see what was this hundred dollar charge we ran through PayPal that has some corporate entity rather than the actual name of the product on it. For example, you know, mm-hmm. so that's one of the lessons I learned going forward is pay out, pay all of that off a bank account, so that's more tidy and easier to you know uh, parse out in something like QuickBooks as opposed to just a big PayPal reconciliation. Uh, so it, it was quite a process.
1: Okay, interesting, interesting. And then your conversation around keeping living fits away from um, the kettlebell king deal. Um, was it uncomfortable or did was it like, look, um was it from the get go? Did you just you know flag that out from the get go so um they you just manage expectations?
0: yeah, that was something we just in the conversations we were having, said from the beginning, like, look, these are two separate entities. Yes, we're selling x, y z products on Kettlebell Kings, for example, but these are actually owned by this other brand. Living Fit at the time was in a completely different place financially compared to Kettlebell Kings and so in a lot of ways it just didn't even make sense for someone to want to acquire it at the time Um, but we were basically saying here's what's for sale these kettlebell items you know this brand as opposed to uh these other items and I, i think that makes a lot of sense for anyone who's looking at acquiring because the the analogy i would make is kettlebell kings is a very nice piece of real estate in the sense that it has very good domain authority it can rank really any item really fast. It has a tremendous reputation for customer service and quality. And so in the same way that someone might purchase a piece of real estate you know, in a shopping mall and then start adding the product selection to it, any owner of the business could do that with Kettlebell Kings. Like non-Kettlebell items, sells, living fit items were not selling because they were living fit items. They were selling because they were sold on Kettlebell Kings at the time, if that makes sense. And so any new owner could quickly rebrand you know KBK fitness or kettlebell king's new xyz items and you know maybe even do better basically so it, there wasn't a lot of back and forth or uh discussion about that
1: okay okay makes sense now um so so you, you had um you know living fit products on um on the kettlebell website you know um as, as separate skus essentially okay And um, just where you are now, um, what does it look like? You know, you you sold in 2021, um, we're in 2022 now. And um, so it's been one year, you're in a three year and out, you know, period. Um, What does the, what do the weekly, um, you know, catch ups look like um, with, with Razor Group who are now in, um, I think they're in Berlin. Um, as compared to when you're running, uh, you know, um, kettlebell kings yourself, you know, the, the brand yourself, what, what is it, what has changed, um, post acquisition as you earn out? Well, certainly the time difference. <laughs> so, <laughs>
0: you know, uh, there are seven hours ahead. And so there's, you know, coordinating meetings. Mornings are pretty busy right now with kettlebell kings related items, you know, pretty much from the moment we get up, uh, you know, I'm in California right now and, um, like the first scheduled meeting of the day, which I did not attend, but it was scheduled for 4 30 AM. So the mornings are pretty busy with that. Um, So there's a lot of organizational knowledge that we need to continue to help impart and build out SOPs for them. So there's a lot of SOP building about, you know, how would we handle this situation? How would we think about that situation? Uh, You know, how would maybe this new product do versus that new product do? Right. Um, So, we stay pretty busy and pretty involved on a weekly basis working with them.
1: Okay, okay. And um, what about decision making? Um, so, how how has that changed? Um, obviously, there's the specialists. You know, within an aggregator, um, you'd have finance specialists, procurement specialists, you'd have marketing specialists, you'd yeah. even have platform specialists. You know, just specialists working on Amazon on specific bits of Amazon. Um, so, so, um, if you want to effect a change, you know that's linked to growth. Um, what, what does it look like as compared to when it was just you three?
0: Yeah, there's way more people involved. Um, so, you know, obviously, I think when you're building a, a much larger company like Razor is, it's important to have a lot of people in decision making because you don't want some rogue decision maker, you know, taking the company off of a cliff, but yeah, that's that's a perfect example where, you know, like our our inventory ordering process before we had a piece of software we used called inventory planner, which we found to be very effective. Um, and we would we had we had college kids working for us. Right. And so we basically groomed these kids of here's what you do. You read the software. You tell us what to do. You know, we make the order. Right. And uh, those 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 guys were great working for us. And a lot of them worked for us, you know, for the first year or so after college. Uh, but, like that would be super easy. Okay, hey, inventory planner says to order this. you know, okay, now we send it go go place the p o, right? That's a much different process now where you know there's people whose entire jobs it is to pro- project inventory needs across like a bigger corporation. They've got their own new formulas and new things that they want to do it. Uh, and you know, we have to try to kind of come to some agreement sometimes about what's the art and the science behind how we should be ordering. Something might seem like blatantly obvious to us based on our experience, yep. um, but there, there needs to be a numerical justification for them to actually pull the trigger. Which I do completely understand, and you know, I, they don't know us. It's like they're getting to know us still over the last six to nine months. You know, and uh, I wouldn't expect them to make you know a have a million dollar decision just based off of us. But yeah, that would be like a, a biggest example.
1: Okay. Interesting. 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 A really, really data-driven um, decision making, and there's a chain of command. Yeah, you know, in there.
0: I think the challenge is like, even when we were in the business, like we would have wanted to be as data-driven as as, as possible, right? Um, like it, the num- we don't think numbers lie. We try to remove all personal biases from decision making. Sometimes I do think that, especially in a small business where you don't have access to like data scientists and the funding yeah. to create all this kind of reporting, it is about the intuition of the entrepreneur sometimes. Yep, yeah. yeah. and uh, uh, you have to go with it sometimes.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think just to re- re- rephrase what I just said or reframe it, it's it's experience driven. So, in, from your perspective, you have the data, right. which is sometimes. In your head, based on experience and on spreadsheets, and and that just gives you intuition to making the decisions because it's fluid. It's 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 based on experience and the data. But from their point of view, they don't have that experience bit, so they're using numbers and you know data science to back it up to try and you know um you know get those get get that time back and really really. It just make make more informed decisions and um yeah, it, it's 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 interesting. It, it, it's interesting. We can go over yeah. to, you know, on and on and on about it. Okay, so marketing. Um you guys commanded quite a strong um, you know, um multiple for your bit um typically it's four, five, you know, five and a half is, is pretty solid. Um do you think it's down to your SEO? Um, you know what you, you talked about. You know, just adding um, you know products to. So obviously, Google so sort of views you know kettlebell as a fitness brand, and so you're able to add categories that would rank really well or fairly quickly. And you know those categories would lead to revenue, right? Um, interest and traffic and revenue was was your um, key differentiator. Your your SEO. Did you do performance? How were you? How did marketing evolve? Um from you know the the early um from your early days to 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 the point of exit in in twenty twenty one
0: yeah, I think marketing is you know one of the most important aspects of the business. you know we, we had built just an incredible reputation for quality and how we treated customers. You know we viewed every interaction with a customer as a way to differentiate our brand from how someone else is is potentially interacting with that customer. And so the combination of marketing and all facets of marketing, whether it's SEO, paid uh, social followings, we were very strong. And I mean, I think at the time we sold, we had maybe close to 350,000 followers on Instagram with a blue checkmark account. You know, um, n- numbers of celebs, celebrities were following the brand. And we we actually tracked that. Like, so we had a spreadsheet of like other celebrities and blue checkmark people following us that was part of when we finally did start talking about selling that we would show people, uh, right. We had a very strong reputation on communities like Reddit, um, which is very organic, um, you know, people sharing their experiences with the product and the brand. As far as marketing in general, you name it, we tried it over time. Right. Um, and so I think, I would hope that in future businesses, I would never be so rigid as to say, well, that didn't work in Kettlebell King, so I don't want to try it now. But we were very aware that we were novices at everything. And so whether it was about the product itself or marketing, we were willing to try and listen to a lot of different things and experiment and see how it worked. Um, So, I mean, if that's helpful, I'd be glad to go into some of the specific strategies that we use, but that's generally how we thought about it. Okay. Uh, let's jump into the specific
1: strategies you used. Um, so um, what do you think really propelled um, your acquisition?
0: Yeah, I think that probably that, I mean, we always had a baseline, you know, ad, AdWords budget, right? So just over time you're, you're building sales, you're building repeat customers. And I think that is a must. You almost always have to have that running, but like in any business, you have to think about how can you market a little bit different? The, most successful things i think for us that really paid off over time were one some of the lead campaigns we ran so instead of just saying buy 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 this product let's stick it in your face like on facebook or instagram we created a lot of value for people by creating content about like how to choose the right kettlebell or here's a weekly workout you can do with our kettlebell so we would have actually created workouts that people could just do at their home That evolved over time where one, we would just post it on social media for people to do. Then it occurred to us, oh, well, maybe we should try to get more email addresses this way. So like we had campaigns going for a long time where people could sign up to receive weekly workouts from us. And in those emails, they'd have a workout to do. We'd include blog posts about like how to choose the right kettlebell or to know when to increase the weight of the kettlebell that you're using. So that had a lot of effects. One is you're creating value and building trust with people, which is really important. So you're actually creating value for people as opposed to trying to sell them something. Two is it gives something people for people to share. They're going to send it to other people. Uh, they're going to post links to it, and it's going to help your SEO rankings over time. right? Um, and three, you position yourself as an expert in knowledge as opposed to just, you know again, a product salesperson. So over time, you know, we were on average getting leads for anywhere from like thirty cents to a dollar per. You know, we were averaging about thirty. Is,
1: to, is that is that still the case? Um, the the lead the gen thirty to thirty p to uh, thirty cents to a dollar.
0: I'm currently getting that in Living Fit still. Wow. Yeah, um, I don't know what Kettlebell Kings is getting. I, I've not looked at what they're getting here recently. Um, but uh, over time we found that. We were getting about a 10 to 1 ROI on that spend, right? By mm-hmm. by doing that, just creating pure value for people. Eventually, when it comes time, they need a product, they purchase. That also really helped us build followings in markets before we even got there. So, you know, we, I think, would have been a global brand five years ago if we sold something that wasn't so damn hard to ship across the world, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we get inquiries all the time from Europe before we were there or India, you know, how much to ship to this com- you know, this country. And it's, it's astounding. It's four or $500 often, you know, to ship across the world. And so we always knew that whether, you know, we would want to move into those countries. So we ran very inexpensively driving campaigns in Europe and Australia and in India, $5 a day on Facebook, just driving leads, getting people in our email workflows, so that by the time like we actually moved into australia or moved into europe which we did while we still owned the business we had pretty solid email lists and people ready to market to who are interested in the brand before mm-hmm. we even got there and you know that's basically spending 90 bucks a month in a, in an area just building leads over time you know kind of out of sight out of mind yeah well, i was going to say the last thing i think that we did that worked really well is again this, i think all stems from the fact that we knew we were kind of novices we looked for experts to work with who could you know, help guide us on what would be the best possible kettlebells. And so that had a couple of effects. One was these people felt like they were part of the process and they wanted to share the product with people who listened to them. Uh, and two is there are events where people compete and lift in kettlebells. We The way that those worked is like these are people who are just kettlebell fanatics it's not um like a a professional basketball league where there's a lot of uniformity to it people would just show up to these meets or these events with their own kettlebells so there wasn't like a standardized weight system or being able to everybody's competing with the same product someone would have x kettlebell someone would have y kettlebell so we agreed early on to sponsor some of these events and we provided all the product in kind for them to use so that they could have like a standardized experience for everyone attending it. And that people love that because other companies weren't willing to do that. They weren't willing to give up that much product because it it was a lot of product. I mean, $20,000, $30,000 retail value worth of product. Um, And I think that created a lot of grassroots support for us over time. And, you know, forever thankful to that community for how much they supported the brand, you know, after we supported them.
1: Yeah. And, and those are your advocates right there, right there. You're, you touching their lives and you know, they will spread the word, you know, moving forward. And when they're in buy mode, they'll think about you guys first, given the fact that they've tried, they've actually tried and they love what they, they, they tried in, in those events. Amazing. Interesting story. Um, one other thing I picked up on what you just said is the long-term view um, you guys had. Um, you were not looking at eating today. Um, it was not just about okay, what are we going to? What, what's in today? What's the haunt like today? You know, um, what are the results? What are we going to get? You know, what sales are we going to get? It was like okay, how can we add value? How can we start a relationship? How can we start this conversation? How can we be valuable and relevant to these people? How can we gain their trust over time? Um, so my my question to to that is, what was the nurture time? Um, typically, so you acquire a lead today. Um in how many months' time would you um would they look just average you know every every you know there's no typical you know use case right but what typically when did you expect to get that payback what was your payback period
0: I want to say the last time we looked at it it was like three months wow yeah it it was wow. it was pretty long
1: um no, that's not long that's just one quarter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah that's uh, one quarter you're, you're buying leads at one dollar and then you know one dollar lead gets into something that's automated and then in three months they purchase from you dude
0: <laughs> yeah i mean it it, it it takes a while to to build that you know uh i re- i remember the first year i was like wow this really works is we were having a good year you know this is probably five six years ago we were having a, a good year there were several times during the year where we considered cutting the lead driving spend, you know, but then black Friday rolled around and it was just monstrous, like, yeah. you know, just a monstrous black Friday. And yeah. it was like, Oh, this is why we do it. You know, yeah, um, just completely biggest, you know, sales day I could have imagined ever at the time. um, And uh, so that, you know, that's why, okay, we're, we're always going to do this no matter what. Basically. Yeah
1: yeah makes sense makes sense and it, it's a its it's just a clear funnel um you know case study right there Claire so so what about channels other channels um you're evidently clearly a d to c brand um from my understanding razor um razor group um they they're an amazon aggregator but they started to sort of you know acquire like um you know d to c brands hence you know you being part of the portfolio um so so in you know, throughout the, the, the expansion, you know, over that nine, 10 year period, um, did, did, were you multi-channel? Did you sell through retail? Did you sell through, you know, Amazon marketplaces, Walmart? Um, or was it exclusively, were you just trying to, to build that customer relationship and, you know, customer data and have that, you know, one-to-one relationship with customers through D2C?
0: Yeah. I mean, we thought about other channels the same way we thought about marketing, which is, you know, you should just, you should try it and do it and, and see if it's going to work. Right. Because you just, you don't know where you're going to have that success. And mm-hmm. theoretically, if any of them had been bigger than DTC, we would have thought about how that, how that should affect the trajectory of our business. Right. So we did sell on Amazon prior to the acquisition. Um, and we were on there for about a year and a half. And it was it was about 20% of our sales, maybe 25 in, in the biggest year. Um, so not a majority by any means. But we actually had an experience where we got delisted from Amazon. Um, because when we first hired outside parties to start doing our fulfillment, we were not doing it ourselves. We had a pretty terrible experience with the first company we used fulfillment by the way is it's crazy it's it's almost like the Wild west where there's a lot of inexperienced companies doing it right now and uh, you know i've I've worked with a couple of different ones that i just i can't believe how not good at fulfillment they were compared to what we we were on our own uh, so we were delisted on Amazon for about two years like throughout the pandemic we were not on amazon um, Amazon randomly reached out to us about the time we were going through our due diligence process that they had interest in kind of rehabilitating our brand on Amazon. And so we got back on through that, uh, to your question about razor. Yeah, they definitely want to help us grow our Amazon sales to us. That's exciting. You know, that given that that's their specialty and what they do, you know, we're eager to learn, uh, and see how we can grow Amazon sales really throughout the world.
1: Hmm. Hmm. Okay, let's get back to, to Living Fit, your your new brand. Um, so, on the face of it, um, workout plans, membership, certification, um, and then at the back end, um, there's equipment, um, there's media, and then there are courses. Actually, it's it's. So, are you? Is it more like an aloe yoga model whereby you sell the courses first and then. You know, people get into the ecosystem and then buy gear from you, or is it e-commerce first? What what comes? What's what's priority? Where do you spend eighty percent of your time on on live and fit um, courses, content, digital products, or or physical products?
0: For me personally, I think we're still in the process of discovering what that is. You know, I would say right now we're much better at selling equipment, Um, and that has a lot to do with like the relationships that I built. You know, while owning kettlebell kings understanding how to talk to different influencers or review websites or content creators. So I can make that happen a lot faster now than before. But it, you know, my goal certainly is to grow the digital aspect of that and the courses aspect of that. For most of the life of that business, it's been exclusively living fit products. But like in the last three months I've opened it up to now where we're building more of a courses marketplace where any course creator can sell Mm. There are certifications or there are courses targeting trainers on our platform, and you know, I think that delivers a lot more value for our community because it expands what we're able to showcase. Um, and ideally, has trainers coming back to us for more than just kettlebell or battle rope courses.
1: Mm. So it's it's a it's a platform essentially. Um, yeah, yeah, it makes sense. A kettlebell, well, just a, a fitness platform rather than just um, yeah. Um, My- a comic-
0: My goal over time would be to build it into uh, a fitness media entity. I mean, I'd like to have fitness-related shows and podcasts, um, you know, where I'd like to create an experience where people are using our equipment, they're reading articles written by our experts and our trainers that are are helping them make better fitness decisions in their lives, you know, and then consuming a show uh, about a health and fitness-related topic as well. So that's the experience I'm trying to create.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's a term. There's a term for for it. Um, you know, um, content commerce. Um, yeah. There, there's a, there's a term for it. I I forget the term. Okay. Um, speaking to your like influencer marketing strategy. Um, what tips you have to for for listeners who are trying to you know sort of reach out to to fitness influencers? You know, build. Genuine relationships that um, you know, translate to, to value on, on both ends. How do you approach it? What, what's been your approach and what works um, from your, your perspective? I think the
0: main thing is, is people who are viewed as subject matter experts are the type that I have found work best for us. You know, I've done collaborations with WWE wrestlers who have 5 million followers and it doesn't lead to a single sale or, you know, maybe a hundred new followers, right? I've done collaborations with, I guess the term would be micro influencers, but they're more subject matter experts who have, you know, 10,000 followers and you know they're just driving way more sales and way more interest in the brand. So I do think that people who are like legit subject matter experts potentially have some type of designations or accolades in the field that they're in or what have worked best for us uh,
1: mm-hmm. over time. Mm-hmm. Interesting, interesting. Okay, Jay, uh, I could go on and, and on and on um, with, with, with this conversation. Um, I've I thoroughly enjoyed it. But before I let you go, um, we have an evergreen lightning round. I'm going to ask you about six or seven questions. If you could use a single sentence to, to, to answer each of them, we'll be, we'll be A-OK. Okay. Ready when you are.
0: I think I'm ready. Let's go.
1: All right. Okay. Are you a morning person? Uh, yes, I am. Yeah. Okay. So what's, what's your daily morning routine? Uh, it's pretty simple
0: routine. It's, uh, make coffee and start answering emails. But, um, I, I do like being up early. Uh, it just feels good to, you have, feel like you have more time to yourself before everyone else is really up and active. Um, you know, when I first started Kid About Kings, I was driving for Lyft as well. And I would get up at 4.30 in the morning because that was the best time. People going to the airport, you could earn more. Um, And so I just kind of got in the habit then. I don't get up that early anymore, but uh, that's kind of where it started.
1: Amazing. Amazing. Interesting. Okay. um, Are you into sports?
0: Yes. Yes. I like pretty much all sports. Uh, What would be another sports question?
1: (laughs) What's your favorite team? Uh, San Antonio Spurs.
0: I grew up in San Antonio. There's not any other pro teams there. So that's uh, pretty much my my main allegiance. I've tried to adopt like NFL teams or MLB mm-hmm. teams over the years, and I, it's just been totally fake, and I end up not caring when they win or lose that much. And so the Spurs are the only real one, and the Texas Longhorns because I went to UT. All
1: um, right. Home, so home is best. They yeah. say home is best, right? Okay, what two things can't you live without?
0: Oh, jeez. Uh I, For better or for worse, I think probably my cell phone um, because I do look for information on it all the time. You know, mm-hmm. constantly Googling things, trying to read things.
1: Um, and let's just say water because no one can live without water. Fair enough, fair enough, fair enough. What book are you currently reading or listening to?
0: Uh, I'm currently listening to Les Miserables uh, because... I kind of gotten on a French kick here recently over the last couple of years, which all started with uh, the musical um, that was popular in the United States, Hamilton. There was a French character in that called Lafayette. I got interested, read a couple of bios, French revolution stuff. And now I've been taking French lessons for the last year and been reading French novels. Uh, So I'm listening to Les Miserables, but I'm reading a book called, uh, it's, it's, it's something about, uh, something time and it's basically accounts from people living in the Soviet Union.
1: Okay. Okay. Incredible. What? What's, what's your French like now? Uh, très bien. Très bien. <laughs> ça va, ça va. Okay. Um, final question is what's been your best mistake to date by that? I mean, a setback that's given you the biggest feedback. Yeah,
0: there's been so many. And I mean, it's so cliche to say, but making small mistakes is incredibly helpful because you learn from them um you know we had an experience where we uh we brought on a new supplier we sold through that product we reordered from them and they sent us completely different product that that time uh the second time and it's just like unbelievable you know just completely different product look different and they're just like what it's a kettlebell um so i i would say just being able to understand a lot more about the supply chain and how much you need to monitor that so that you can say have consistent quality and consistent experience for your customers because there's just giant trickle-down effect, you know, in the in how people view your brand and view their interactions with you. Yeah.
1: We could record a masterclass on your supply chain uh, yeah. in, in 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 of itself. Mr. Jay Perkins, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the 2x e-commerce podcast now. For people who want to find out more about you, I'm going to link up to the Living Fits website, which is living.fit. Um, and then, um, are you active on any socials we, we should link up to, um, on, on, on the show notes?
0: No, I'm not, I'm not very active socially. I am on LinkedIn. So that's probably just the best place I can get you that profile. Yeah. Um, Anything else is pretty much just look for a living fit. Um, you know, on Instagram, Facebook, all the good stuff.
1: I'll send you a connection request on LinkedIn and, and link up to to your, your LinkedIn from the show notes. It's been a Great. pleasure having you. I enjoyed this conversation and thank you again for coming on the 2X e-commerce podcast. Yep. Yeah, thank you as well. Cheers.